when I was growing up, watching The Wizard of Oz on TV was an annual tradition. I don't know if y'all remember this. This was uh, way before on-demand movies. When I was really young, it was before VCRs and VHS rentals, which the most popular member of the staff doesn't remember. I know, the VCRs and the VHS <laughs> rentals. <laughs> and so each year, when The Wizard of Oz would air on TV, our family would, like, stop down to watch it. And you had to be in front of the TV at that particular time to watch it. It was my mother's second, still is, my mother's second favorite movie of all time, After Gone with the Wind. We would sing along with the music. I obviously got to know the characters and the story pretty well. Like so many people, I love The Wizard of Oz. And so when my wife Whitney and I went to see the hit show Wicked on its first national tour back in 2005, I was totally delighted by the story. If you're unfamiliar with it, Wicked purports to be the prequel to The Wizard of Oz, the untold story of the Witches of Oz, the backstory of how Glinda became the Good Witch and how the Wicked Witch of the West got to be so bad. And as I was uh, reading the playbill before the musical started, I discovered that the, the musical, the stage version, is actually based on a novel by a guy named Gregory Maguire. So the novel is called Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West. And I had what I thought was a great idea. Uh, I enjoyed the musical so much that I bought two copies of the novel, one for me and one to give to my mom for Mother's Day. I knew that she loved the movie, obviously. I knew that she would love the musical when she saw it, and I figured we would both enjoy uh, reading the book at the same time and then talking about it together. And so I sent mom her Mother's Day gift, uh, and the next day I took the, the book to the gym and I read it when I was on the stationary bike. Less than a chapter in, I realized I had made a terrible mistake. <laughs> if you've read the book, you know why. Uh, because unlike, the, no unlike um, the musical, the novel is very dark and very brooding, which is one thing, but what's worse, it's also pretty racy in some places. And I had encouraged my mother to read it and then talk about it with me. People at the gym looked at me strangely when I exclaimed out loud, and this is true, I was reading and I said, oh no, <laughs> as I read about uh, just way too much information about, uh, let's just call it the intimate lives of the witches of Oz. And so I got home, I immediately called my mother to apologize for the book. I uh, assured her I had no intention of talking with her about it. <laughs> And I promised that she would uh, love the musical, which is much happier and much more appropriate than the novel. And of course, the musical is the subject for today. This is week three of our sermon series, The Bible on Broadway. The premise is that we're exploring the theology to be found in some of the biggest hits in Broadway history. In week one, we talked about um, Jesus Christ Superstar, which raises the question of who Jesus is to each of us as his disciples. Last week, we talked about West Side Story, and we talked about how um, of all the groups that we claim as our own, our Christian identity has to be the most important one. Those sermons are on the website if you missed them and would like to get caught up. Today, as I mentioned, we're talking about the 2003 Broadway hit, hit Broadway in 2003 smash hit Wicked, which is based on the, the themes of Gregory Maguire's novel, uh, but with a much more upbeat ending and nothing that would embarrass you if you're watching it with your mother. It's a terrific story, uh, even more so, of course, if you grew up watching The Wizard of Oz. 
And as with all the musicals in this series, it brings up a, a number of pretty big, uh, important themes, lots of things to think about in the musical. For example, it's about the way that political power can corrupt those who have it. This is uh, The Wizard in one of the productions. <clears throat> and about how those with, with power uh, sometimes create enemies in order to rally their people around a cause and thereby deepen their hold on power. It's also about how we, we fear and marginalize people and things that we don't understand and about what constitutes good and evil and how sometimes uh, the distinction between those two is a matter of one's perspective. Obviously, there are big, important themes in this musical which are worthy of exploration. We could probably do, honestly, a whole sermon series on them. But today, I want to focus on uh, the two characters at the heart of the story. So we're going to talk about the bumps in the road along their journey of friendship. We're going to talk about how they work through the challenges that we all face in our relationships, particularly with those we love the most, because it turns out the two witches at the heart of the story have been best friends since college. It all started when they arrived at Shiz University, much to their chagrin, Elphaba and Glenda were assigned to be roommates. So Elphaba, the one on the left is the outsider, the nerdy, studious girl with green skin who had little use for what she perceived to be the frivolity and shallowness of her roommate. Glenda, on the right, actually Galinda, for those who have seen the show, is the carefree, popular girl who thinks Elphaba is too serious and too grumpy. And over the course of the first act, the, the two of them discover that they actually have a fair amount in common. They realize uh, that they actually like each other and they form an unlikely friendship that will drive the plot of the musical. Along the way, we get the backstories of the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion and of course the Wizard, all to the tune of incredibly catchy numbers. That's what you need to know. We'll come back to their story in a minute. So our text for the morning comes from what we call Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth was um, very important to his ministry and very important in the early history of the church. He had established and organized the church there. And then uh, after moving on to plant other churches throughout the Roman Empire, he remained in close contact with Corinth. He sent the Corinthians more letters than made their way into our New Testament. We know for sure that there were at least four letters. There were perhaps several more. Paul also returned to Corinth more than once, and it's uh, one of these visits that is the backdrop of our passage this morning. In between the writing of what we call 1 Corinthians and what we call 2 Corinthians, in between those, uh, Paul had gone to Corinth and he had an unpleasant encounter with a member of that congregation. We don't know exactly the details of the conflict, but someone had insulted Paul, probably questioning his apostolic authority. And if you've read Paul's letters, you know there's nothing that flies all over him more than questioning his authority. The congregation had apparently not done anything about it while Paul was there. And so um, sometime after he left town, after brooding on it for a while, he sent what he refers to as the tearful letter, which is lost to history, explaining his anger with the Corinthians about this episode. Now, the Corinthians loved Paul. 
he was obviously the founder of their church, the most important religious figure in their lives other than Jesus. And so they wanted to correct the situation immediately. But as it turns out, they were a little too zealous in correcting the problem. In response to Paul's tearful letter, the congregation banished the person who had offended him, kicking him out of the community of faith. So that's where we'll pick up the story. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the Apostle Paul. So I made up my mind not to make you another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I am confident about all of you that my joy would be the joy of all of you. For I wrote you out of much distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. But if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but to some extent, not to exaggerate it, to all of you. This punishment by the majority is enough for such a person. So now, instead, you should forgive and console him so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, this person that they'd kicked out. I wrote for this reason, to test you and to know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And we do this so that we may not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in order for this passage to make sense, you need to know that uh, the Corinthians were frankly kind of a mess. And the reason that Paul wrote them as often as he did and visited them as often as he did uh, was that there were lots of problems in Corinth for him to address. It seems that there were many of the new Christians in Corinth who, who struggled with the practical matters of living their faith. And at least, at least some of them had a hard time leaving behind their less pious practices of their former lives. And so when we read first and second Corinthians, um, we read about, about divisions within the church at Corinth. We read about lawsuits between church members. We read about arguments over dietary restrictions. We read about conflicts over Holy Communion of all things. But the most shocking issue in Corinth was a case of a, of a man who was in a relationship with his stepmother. And we know no other details than that, but understandably, this was a scandal to Paul. And in 1 Corinthians, he takes the church to task for not confronting this issue, for not dealing with this problem. Now, the ancient church fathers assumed that the person who later insulted Paul and challenged his authority in that conflict that prompted the tearful letter was the same man that he had called out for being in this inappropriate relationship with his stepmother. That's what the ancient fathers assumed. We have no way of knowing that for sure, whether or not that was indeed the same person, but we do know that the Corinthians were kind of a mess and that something happened that got a member of the congregation expelled from the community of faith. And we know that Paul, 
In retrospect, once the heat of the moment had passed, once his anger over the situation had subsided, no doubt after he'd had a chance to to pray about it and ask God for guidance, Paul came to the realization that this person, despite the offense, needed to be forgiven. Because, as he so forcefully and memorably says in his letter to the Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have received grace and forgiveness from God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, Paul's point is that the the unity of the body of Christ, the health of the community of faith, actually requires us to move past our hurts. Now, it's important to note that uh, forgiveness does not minimize the offense. It's not kind of wiping it from the record. Paul's not saying that what the person did was okay. He's actually saying quite the opposite. He had confronted the situation as inappropriate. But his point is that as Christ has forgiven us, so we can make the choice to forgive others. As as long as the relationship is not abusive, a relationship can be restored. As long as the relationship is a healthy one, acknowledging each other as equal partners before God, then healing is not only, it's not only possible, but it's actually, it's actually necessary. And in our passage this morning, in the context of this particular congregation of Christ Church, Paul is advocating reconciliation rather than retaliation. The world retaliates, we reconcile. He's he's arguing for um, restoration of the relationship rather than revenge. The world is interested in revenge. Christians should be interested in restoring relationships. And the necessary first ingredient is forgiveness, modeled for us by Christ. Now, we could do a whole second sermon on repentance. I'm not going to do that now. That's 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 a part of the equation here. But what Paul is talking about is forgiveness. And that's not just true for the body of Christ. It's not just true in the community of faith. The same is true for our interpersonal relationships as well, be they romantic or friendships or work relationships. No relationship can survive if we're interested in keeping score. If we keep score of hurts and offenses, that does nothing but hurt a relationship. A relationship between two imperfect human beings 100% of those relationships are going to contain their fair share of mistakes on both sides. We know this. Things that we say that we regret or things that we don't say that we should have said. Um, Insensitivity to the other's needs or oversensitivity to our own needs. Paul is very clear in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all know that. And over the years, if we waste our energy on keeping records of each other's wrongs, our mental ledgers will be, will be filled with things that are best forgiven if we want our relationships to survive. Resentments and grudges and memories of long past offenses, those are all corrosive, not just to the relationship, but to our own souls if we hang on to that. Setting boundaries is appropriate and important. But then, so is moving on. (laughs) And this is Paul's advice, both to the Corinthians and to us. And it comes from a pastor's heart. In Wicked, there are a couple of significant stumbling blocks between 
in the friendship between Glenda and Alphaba. The first is essentially a, a disagreement over politics, and I know no families ever have disagreements over politics, right? That never comes up over the Thanksgiving table, I'm sure. But in the musical, Alphaba fights against the oppression of the wizard's regime while Glenda becomes its public face, and this obviously becomes an issue in their friendship. The second major issue is a competition over love, a young prince named Fiero. And the second act of the musical tells the story of these conflicts while also giving us the the backstory of the flying monkeys and the death of Elphaba's sister, who was killed by that flying house. The the clever tagline of the musical, if you can't read it, is so much happened before Dorothy dropped in. (laughs) And in the original Broadway production, Christian Chenoweth and Adina Menzel uh, play, uh, Christian Chenoweth plays Glenda and Adina Menzel plays Elphaba, and they were both nominated for Tonys in the Best Actress category. Adina Menzel won, but either of them could have. And if you ask me, uh, they could have won entirely based on the performance of one of my favorite musical numbers of all time. In an interview, one of the producers called the song For Good, Uh, the moment that the show comes together. Sophia and Sarah are going to sing it here in a minute. It's It's a duet between these two reluctant roommates who had become the best of friends. And in the show, it's, it's the last time that they're ever going to see each other. They're singing honestly about the ups and downs of any relationship. It's a goodbye, uh, but it's, it's more than that. To me, it's a ballad about reconciliation and forgiveness. It's a song about what relationships at their best mean to us and about uh, how they They can survive only if we see each other for who we are, which is imperfect fellow children of God who sometimes get it right and sometimes mess it up, but who, if we're committed, can help each other grow and thrive in the midst of a life that will undoubtedly be filled with its share of ups and downs, joys and sorrows, laughter and tears. If we're willing to accept the risk, and the inevitability that we'll sometimes get hurt in our relationships. If we're convinced that the joy of being in a relationship with each other is worth the occasional heartache, and if we're willing to forgive each other along the way, then we will indeed change each other for good. I think this is one of the hardest life lessons to learn, or at least I'll say it was one of the most, one of the hardest life lessons for me to learn. (laughs) And it's not just a life lesson, it's a theological lesson as well. Holding on stubbornly to the things we should let go. Resentments, grudges, memories of long past offenses, keeping score in our relationships is just a wicked problem. (laughs) It doesn't do anybody any good. Because life is too short and our relationships are too precious for that. Our relationships shape us. They make life's triumphs more meaningful. They, they are our rock in life's storms. And to make them last, Paul understood this great theological truth that he learned by the witness of Christ. May we take his advice seriously by having the willingness and the grace to forgive.